0: Since its release, this 80s flick is still considered by many to be one of the best war movies ever made. The director, who himself was wounded twice while serving with the U.S. Army in Vietnam, famously put his cast through a grueling boot camp to help immerse them into the world of their fictional characters. With an all-star cast and loads of visually striking practical effects, this Vietnam War epic won more awards than any other film during the 59th Academy Awards. So prepare for digging foxholes, waking up with ant bites, and surviving ambush duty as JB Huffman and I discuss platoon from 1986 on this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast.
1: I volunteered. I dropped out of college and told him I wanted the infantry combat in Vietnam. Out of the hole fast! Ah! Take the pain! First the pain! I kind of fit feeling on this one, all right? Watch out! Tom Berenger, Willem Dafoe, Charlie Sheen. No such thing as a coward out here don't mean nothing. The first real movie about the war in Vietnam is Platoon Rated R.
0: Hello, movie viewers and movie lovers. My name is Tim Williams, the creator and host of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. On each episode, I'm joined by an 80s Flick-loving guest co-host to talk about one of the great and sometimes not-so-great movies from the 1980s. From blockbusters to cult classics to lesser-known treasures we discovered on cable TV or the now-defunct video rental stores from our childhood. No matter which 80s flick we choose for each episode, we have a lot of fun sharing first-time watch memories, discussing our favorite iconic scenes, and even learning some behind-the-scenes stories about the cast and crew along the way. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe and follow 80s Flick Flashback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your favorite podcast platform is. And while you're there, leave us a stellar written review and a 5-star rating. You can also support the show by following us on our social media pages. Just search for 80s Flick Flashback on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And don't forget to check out our website, 80sflickflashback.com, as well. If you want to take your support to the next level, you can become a financial partner for less than $10 a month. The link to financially support the podcast is located in our episode show notes. And while you're there, be sure to check out more fun facts. And behind the scenes trivia, we just weren't able to fit into today's episode. Thanks for listening. Now, on with the show. Well, welcome in, everybody. So glad to have you on this very patriotic uh, and memorable, uh, as it's Memorial Day weekend, podcast episode of the 80s Flick Flashback, talking about the movie Platoon from 1986. Since it's such a manly movie, I figured I'd have the host of the Manly Movies podcast on here with me. He's been on before. Please welcome Mr. J.B. Huffman to the show once again. How you doing, J.B.?
2: What up? What up? I'm doing well, man. How about you?
0: (laughs) I'm doing pretty good. Uh, A lot to talk about with this movie, for sure. You had sent me like a behind-the-scenes thing to watch, which I did watch and was really good. And then I saw one today I sent to you that I don't think you got a chance to watch. But I think I fully immersed myself in this movie, probably more so than I have some other ones that we've done in the past, but doing the research and seeing what these guys went, these actors went through for this movie makes you appreciate it a little bit more. And we'll talk a little bit about that as we get going, but uh, let's jump right into the regular format. When did you see platoon for the first time?
2: I see. I saw bits and pieces of it when I was younger, right? I never actually saw it from start to finish until about three or four years ago. Okay. Um, I watched it on Netflix and, and immediately after watching it, i I had an old I had a DVD of it that I had never watched. Like oh wow! I, just, I had it laying around, <laughs> it. and so I was like, "I'm gonna pop this DVD in after I already watched it on Netflix, right?" And see what all special features are, and then that's when I saw that uh, tour of the Inferno, right? The um the documentary on it. And I just watched it immediately, and I was mm-hmm. just like enthralled. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I, of course, I watched it again the other day. So this is only my second time to watch it.
0: Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, yeah. this is not one that I saw in the theater. I, I know I watched this one on VHS, but this came out right like the late 80s was right around the time that I was really getting into like the Academy Awards and what critics had to say about movies and kind of those type, you know, more more of what the Academy was, not just blockbusters or not just like silly, you know, popcorn movies, but like really like serious dramas and things of that nature. But I was also really too young to understand a lot of the movie. Um, So I remember watching it. I'm pretty sure I watched this with my dad. My dad was in the army. Um, He did not serve in Vietnam, but he knew people that did. So I don't remember really us talking about Vietnam that much, but we watched action movies. And I think that's kind of what I expected it to be. Going in as a kid, you know, thinking it was going to be just, you know, because around that time you had the Rambo movies, you had, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Top Gun, those kind of movies that were, you know, kind of action war movies, but that, that's not what this was at all. And so I, I don't remember if I really liked it that much when I was younger, because I don't think I really understood it. And it wasn't until probably I've probably seen it a few times. It's not one that I would you know readily run back to watch but i think i watched it i watched it again like really wanting to watch it probably about 10 or 12 years ago maybe uh one of my friends had referenced it uh had like sent me like a picture or something referenced the movie and i was like you know i haven't seen that a long time and i actually just went this is before you know you could stream movies really and mm-hmm. so I was trying to find somewhere to to, to uh to get it. And I was like, well, I just go buy it. So I went to a Blockbuster, not a Blockbuster, good gracious. I went to a Best Buy <laughs> and actually just kind of rummaged back when they sold a bunch of DVDs and kind of rummaged through uh the store and found a copy, you know, pretty cheap and uh watched it. And it hit me differently that time. But really watching it this time, I think I I I grasped a lot more of what the movie was. Wanting to say and wanting to depict more than just looking for a typical, you know, like storytelling or a typical like overarching plot, you know, that, that, you know, there was no final mission. There was no like, you know, an enemy or a specific bad guy. They were all trying to to fight. So um, seeing it was different. So so I guess kind of answered my my last question. When was the last time I saw it before watching the podcast? It's probably been that long since I really sat down and watched it. Um, so I don't know. You say you've only seen it twice, but what was the, what was the difference watching it the second time for you?
2: I definitely understood more about because after I watched it the first time, and then I saw that documentary and, mm-hmm. and understood more about what Oliver was trying was going for with this right, film.
3: Right,
0: right.
2: I definitely understood that he <laughs> wanted this to be like semi autobiographical, right? Uh, supposedly, and those characters are real. Mm-hmm. Um you know, based on people that he met in Vietnam. And so, I mean, I understood that he wanted people to understand what they went through. Mm -hmm. Like, and just, and, and he wanted the actors to understand what they went through because they're not actually going to act that part. I don't think anybody understood the war in Vietnam. Right. Right. And that's why there were so many protests. Mm -hmm. And so like, I think he, Wanted to put that out there for everyone else, and he had to do the method acting with the actors and mm-hmm. put them in boot camp and put them in the jungle and not and give them rations to eat and all this right, stuff, which right. we'll talk about later, I'm sure. Yeah, but it, yeah, it 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 makes it that much more immense when you understand what, where, where uh, Oliver Stone was was coming from there. Yeah,
0: cool. yeah,
2: <laughs> such a feel good <laughs> movie, man. Right, it,
0: exactly. It, it's, it's, like, yeah, we were talking about that before we started recording. Like, what a yeah, what a, uh, what a fun movie to, uh, to, to discuss and, you know, all sunshine and rainbows. You no, know. but let's talk a little bit about, you know, we, we always talk about the story during pre-production. So we're kind of hinting a little bit at it, but for those that don't really know much about how this movie was made, and I do recommend going and watching, I will, we'll reference the documentaries or the behind the scenes features. Most of them you can find on YouTube now. If you don't have the DVD, but, um, they're really good because it does give you, uh, some good insights into. The filming and what, like I said, what Oliver Stone um, was trying to accomplish with uh, with this movie. But Oliver Stone's journey of creating a cinematic piece about his tour of duty in the Vietnam War began almost after it ended in 1968 when he wrote a Vietnam screenplay called Break, a semi-autobiographical account detailing his experiences with his parents and his time in the Vietnam War. His active duty service resulted in a big change in how he viewed life and the war. He wrote the screenplay based on his experiences as a U.S. infantryman in Vietnam to counter the vision of the war portrayed in movies like John Wayne's The Green Berets, which he talks a little bit about in the in the documentary about how uh I, maybe it wasn't him, I think it was uh uh Die, the uh the uh military Dale advisor, the, the Dale die the military advisor. He was like, you know, they had both seen all these war movies and they would watch him like, you know, this isn't this isn't what war really is. This is Hollywood's pipe dream of these, you know, elaborate plans for getting the enemy and those kind of things. And so he's like, that's not that wasn't our experience. So uh, although the screenplay break was never produced, he later used it as the basis for Platoon. His screenplay featured several characters who were the seeds of those he developed in Platoon. Although break was never produced, Stone decided to attend film school anyway. After writing several other screenplays in the early 70s, Stone worked with Robert Bolt on a screenplay that was never produced called The Cover Up. But Bolt's rigorous approach rubbed off on Stone. The younger man used his characters from the break screenplay and developed a new screenplay, which he titled Platoon. Producer Martin Bregman attempted to elicit studio interest in the project, but was not successful. Stone claims that during that time, Sidney LeMay was to have helmed the film with Al Pacino slated to star had there been studio interest. But based on the strength of his writing in Platoon, Stone was hired to write the screenplay for the movie Midnight Express from 1978. The film was a critical and commercial success, as were some other Stone films at the time, including Scarface, but most studios were still reluctant to finance Platoon because it was about the unpopular Vietnam War. After the release of The Deer Hunter and Apocalypse Now, the studios then cited the perception that these films were considered the pinnacle of the Vietnam War film genre as reasons not to make Platoons. He had a lot of opposition uh, going into this. So uh, Stone responded by attempting to break into mainstream direction via the easier-to-finance horror genre, but failed at the box office, and he began to think Platoon would never be made. Instead, he co-wrote Year of the Dragon for a lower-than-usual fee of $200,000, on the condition that its producer, Dino De Laurentiis, would next produce Platoon. Year of the Dragon was directed by Stone's friend Michael Cimino, who had also helmed the Deer Hunter, and according to Stone, Cimino attempted to produce Platoon in 1984. De Laurentiis secured financing for Platoon, but he struggled to find a distributor. Because he had already spent money sending Stone to the Philippines to scout for locations, he decided to keep control of the film script until he was repaid. Then Stone's script, What Would Become Salvador, was passed to John Daly of British production company Hemdale. Once again, this was a project that Stone had struggled to secure financing for, but Daly loved the script and was prepared to finance both Salvador and Platoon. So Stone shot Salvador first before turning his attention to Platoon. Basically, it took a long time to get this movie made. I think they said it was a 10-year passion project for him to get the movie made.
2: Yeah, and, and it's, it's only like his, what, second or third directed
0: uh movie yeah i think it was yeah i think it was third because he did the horror movie then he did salvador which he said did not was like panned by the critics and nobody loved it so he thought that he's like there's no way they're gonna let me make platoon now but he was already it was already in process and he was like oh this is which i think is why he poured so much more into platoon because he was trying to kind of recover from what what salvador didn't didn't deliver on
2: yeah, so with your third movie, you win Best Picture and yeah, like, Best Director. You're, you're you're a household
0: name, right? Right, right. Hey, it happens that way for some guys, I guess. Uh, as we mentioned before, and and this is what a lot like the two documentaries we've talked about, and the one you said is called uh, Into the Inferno. Is that the name of that one?
2: Uh, Tour of the Inferno. Tour of
0: the Inferno, which is about 38 minutes, and then I watched one today, An hour. Which, it's an hour okay yeah it was an hour was i think
2: like 50 I th- something minutes yeah there.
0: i think originally i thought it was like 38 minutes but it was an hour the one i watched today is like closer to an hour and a half mm-hmm. and it was
2: let's see. brothers in arms i think is what it was called
0: brothers in arms the making of platoon which is actually from 2018 it's a little bit newer than the one uh that that you that you uh had sent me but in both of those like the bulk of what they talk about is this quote-unquote boot camp that yeah. that Oliver Stone and Dale Dye kind of immerse them into uh, the actors. And so uh, we're going to kind of briefly like broad strokes talk about it. But if you want the, you know, all the fun stories to tell and, you know, and both both of those are really good, like a lot better than some other behind the scenes stuff I've seen for other movies where you have a lot of the cast, you know, telling their story. So it wasn't just like one person's, you know, perspective um, and really watching both of them there's some that are in one that aren't in the other and vice versa. So you kind of get mm-hmm. other, other perspectives from some of the other actors as well. But, um, but all the actors had to undergo an intensive two-week basic training in the Philippines where the movie was shot under the supervision of military advisor Dale Dye, who was also a Vietnam veteran. Uh, Oliver Stone's intention was not to have the men bond and act as one unit, but to, but to deprive them of sleep and make them utterly exhausted so they would be burnt out and therefore in character. The actors were given military haircuts and required to stay in character throughout the camp. They ate only military rations, were not allowed to shower or use toilets, had to carry real weight, slept in the jungle, and even had rotations for night watch. Military advisor Dale Dye also simulated several combat situations to teach the actors how to respond under intense stress and had many conversations with the cast about PTSS and the sensation of being shot. Tom Berenger said he lost 28 pounds during the pre-filming boot camp. And the filming for the movie began the very next day after the camp ended. So they didn't get any kind of <laughs> any kind of reprieve uh really mm-hmm. uh from from going from the from the boot camp, quote unquote, to actual shooting the movie. And they talked about how that opening shot of them kind of walking through the jungle, they said that was like that was the very first thing they shot. Like they had so they had done the um they had finished the boot camp training. And they quote unquote graduated. And then they all went to this bar and like all got like completely drunk and on this like Vietnamese moonshine. And they said they all woke up and had the worst hangover and just they had got hardly gotten any sleep. And they're on this bus going to where they're going to start shooting. And he's like, like like, they hadn't showered. They were still in the clothes they had on the day before. And uh, this Oliver's like, okay, go ahead. We're going to hike up this hill. And he said that the look that they had was this exhausted You know not not quite ready for what they're about to in in you know embark on and he he was like dale die and oliver stone was like yep they look like they've been in vietnam for about a year which is what we want them to look like they look (laughs) tired and exhausted and and want to go home and that's exactly how they felt so uh it's pretty pretty Mm -hmm. incredible the you know method acting as we would call it but method directing i guess as well because he really wanted to put them in those situations. He wanted them to feel it. He wanted to, when he didn't want them to pretend it, he wanted them to feel it for sure.
2: Yeah. I thought it was interesting. Like a lot of this stuff, like they, they didn't have like a set designer, like mm-hmm. the, um all those foxholes that you see in the yeah. movie, yeah. the actors had to build them to, themselves. Mm-hmm. They had to dig right. them all out. Right. It's like this was legit soldier stuff. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and 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 just a little just a glimpse of the conditions that they were in there's one scene or one Mm -hmm. thing that uh william defoe was talking about Mm -hmm. where he said that they had to drink uh, water out of canteens that they got from the streams and that they had just any stream that they came across they had to fill their canteens up right so he's drinking he's drinking water out of this canteen for a while and then they get up they get up this exact same stream that they uh just got Mm -hmm. water out of and they see this dead pig laying in the water yep (laughs) Like, it just made his stomach turn.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ooh. yeah. yeah. Anyway. he was pretty sick for a couple of days. And yeah, uh, yeah and I think I you know, I heard you he that story. He's like, he said they'd given him the little like pills or the things you could put in the water that's supposed to help kill any bacteria or whatever. He said, but it wasn't going to kill that, you know, all that the water that had flushed that pig, that dead pig coming through. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then mm. on one of the Eos yeah, bad. And then on this other documentary, the guy who played Doc was telling the story. Like he said, you know, they they came up on uh Willem Dafoe and he was like shivering. He was like he could, you know, like he looked he was totally pale, like they could tell like, this dude is not doing good. And they went to uh Dale Dye's like, hey, man, I don't think Dafoe, he looks bad, man. He looks really bad. We you know, we got to do something. And he, he said, Dale, I said, do what you can. He said, we're miles from any kind of medical facility. He was like, even if we, even if we tried to move him, I don't know what they would be able to do for him. It's like, he just, you know, you got to figure it out. And that was just that guerrilla style filmmaking. Like I said, they and they all caught it like, mm-hmm. it was this little, you know, cheap independent film we were making. It does not look cheap or independent yeah. at not, all. No. Yeah. So, so they did really well, you know, going back to that whole method directing uh, you know, it's well-documented in these in these documentaries and stuff that Oliver Stone was very rough and abusive uh, to the actors during the filming. Uh, according to John C. McGinley, everyone hated Stone for the entire duration of the shoot. This <laughs> was his specific aim in order to expose the cast to something resembling the horrors of war and get the most realistic performances. Most cast and crew members agree that Stone's behavior sometimes bordered on psychotic from a combination of sleep deprivation, post-traumatic stress disorder, and the intensity of the shoot itself. The editor claimed that one day Stone yelled at him for taking away footage of a scene that they hadn't even shot yet. Johnny Depp recalled that during one particularly stressful scene, he was so intimidated by Stone's aggressive behavior that he came close to throwing up. But yeah, that's, and those are just a few of the stories. Like there was, you know, yeah, there was, there's a lot of stories about the things that he did and either he said it was like it was like psychological They said a lot of stuff he did was getting in their heads it wasn't a it wasn't so much about beating them down physically but he was kind of emotionally and mentally tormenting them and they said there was one uh one story where one of the other actors had like this idea for a monologue it's i think it's really good and so stone's like oh yeah we'll do it and so they had the camera in there and they were shooting, they were making the shot and John uh and Charlie Sheen was saying that like stone says, yeah, hey, I need you to be in the shot, but you're just in the background. He said, what do you want me to do? He said, I want you to take these, these two pails of water. I just want you to walk from one side to the other. He's like, well, why am I doing that? He's like, well, it's like, you're taking the pails where you're, you're one is full. You're emptying the pails and then going across to get more water. And Charlie's like, well, can I empty um, the buckets he's like no it doesn't matter just walk back and forth. So he's walking back and forth with like full pails of water for like an hour or whatever and that's going to wear you down anyway. <laughs> and so but then to the actor that had offered him, you know, want to do this monologue that he had written, you know, uh Stone kept interrupting him and not letting him finish and like so it went on and on and on and so uh Charlie said after the after this, you know that they, after they, decide, they decided to like rap or whatever, he said he went to the assistant director. He's like, "Man, you know, why are we doing all this? You know, for the, wh- how important is this scene?" And he said the the assistant director's like, "Dude, there's no film in the camera. It's like this is this is just Oliver Stone being Oliver Stone. He just wants to <laughs> wear everybody out and just mess with their heads." It's like, "Oh my gosh, crazy, crazy."
2: Oh man, yeah, but I mean, it the the finished product though. I, I was i saw a i think it was tom berenger who was talking mm-hmm. about how um how real it was in that um even oliver and dale die were speechless mm-hmm. at, at times like yeah. they, they 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 would finish the scene and they would just be like like completely with no words for about mm-hmm. 30 seconds or so and then they'd be like Okay, that's it, cut yeah <laughs> he, he said he thinks that they were having flashbacks,
0: yeah, but. yeah, yeah,, Ooh. yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I saw that in a couple of different places and for the, the, the I think a couple of them kind of said that it's almost like they were in a trance' it was like there would be moments where they would be shooting a scene and you could just look over at them and like they were like completely somewhere else, and they said that they they felt like they were having those those flashbacks of being there because, like you said, he wrote some of these scenes to be very true to the things that he experienced. And so I think Charlie Sheen talked about it, that I had, there were times I had to wrap my mind around that I'm acting out things that the director actually did in real life. He said, and to yeah. be directing something that you experienced firsthand and watching someone else do it has got to be like mentally, you know, weird, you know, or just like very yeah. hard to comprehend. It becomes a surreal experiences so so you know he's like i i understand why he was rough and that he did the things he did because you know some of it was just his that you know somebody said you know oliver stone is like you know is a way the way he filmed he's a filmmaker he's like even when he's not making the movies like he likes to stir up the drama or stir up create chaos and then film people trying to respond to the chaos and he's like that's how Mm -hmm. the whole shoot was like just creating these things where you getting the actors to react in a certain way so that he can capture that on film. And I was like, well, uh, that sounds like a, a lot of directors. <laughs> that's what they do. I mean, they, that's what, you uh-huh. know, that's what makes it, you know, watchable is you want to see those conflicts. You want to see that, you know, you want to see that, that action in the movies for sure between the characters, but one cool note, and then we'll, we'll go into casting. But with this movie, Oliver Stone became the first Vietnam veteran to direct a major motion picture about the Vietnam war. He was already the first Vietnam veteran to win an Oscar for Midnight Express and became, with this film, the first Vietnam vet to win an Oscar for Best Director. As of 2016, he is the last veteran of any war to win an Oscar for Best Director.
1: And now, these messages playing on a cell phone near you, a show for all the manly men out there, where guys talk about their favorite movies and what they can teach us about being a man, featuring the coolest guests, murder is not like killing an ant, the most gratifying laughs,
2: it's Tombstone, what can I say, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and a
1: fresh take on movies like you've never heard before.
2: This will be the thing that gets written on his
1: proverbial tombstone. We aren't here to criticize the movies you love, but to praise them for how they apply to our lives as husbands, fathers, and really all men in general. So buckle up your seatbelts, because Manly Movies is here. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast catcher. And remember, man up.
2: (sighs) What seems to be the problem, pal? There's so much pain in the world, so many issues, I don't think I can bear it.
1: Well friendo, it sounds like you could use a dose of pop culture roulette.
2: Pop culture roulette? What's that? Some sort of pop culture themed podcast or something?
1: That's right, sunny boy! When hope seems far, dive into some PCR! But I already get my
2: entertainment news from variety.
1: Huh, that's pretty good. If you're a chucklehead, pcr gives you news you need condensed unfiltered and raw from three nerds who know a little something about something
2: wow okay sign me up
1: that's the spirit pop culture roulette new episodes every monday available on all major podcast directories comic books have been around for almost a century So join us for moving panels and I'll see you on the other side of the page.
0: All right. So let's jump into casting. There's a lot of people in this. And as I've said before in other episodes, we can't hit everybody. I'm going to try to be kind of brief with some of the stuff, just kind of, kind of hit the ones that either to me were more mem- memorable in the movie and others that you would recognize from other things that they've done in their career. Um, so. But first of all, we'll talk about who almost was in this movie, and that's James Woods, who had starred in Stone's earlier film, Salvador. He was offered a part. Despite his friendship with the director, he turned it down later, teasingly saying he couldn't, quote unquote, couldn't face going into another jungle with Oliver Stone. <laughs> <laughs> After hearing the stories, what they went through, it was probably a good choice for him. I'm sure once was enough.
2: I'll bet. Thinking about like, some of the stuff that Oliver Stone has done in the past, it, mm-hmm. it seems like it seems like all of his movies are very like visceral in the action that's oh, yeah. going on. Like yeah. th- that that is his shtick, man. Mm-hmm. It all started with him trying to recreate his conditions in the in the Vietnam War, which is yeah. insane. Yeah, <laughs> like,
1: uh, yeah,
0: anyway. I, I agree. Yeah. All right, so we'll start with the uh, main character, Chris Taylor, played by uh, a yeah, very young Charlie Sheen. Uh, Sheen was actually born as Carlos Estevez. Uh, He's the youngest son of, of course, actor Martin Sheen, whose real name is Ramon Estevez. Uh, Sheen's career began in 1983 when he was cast to portray Ron in Grizzly 2, The Predator, the sequel to the 1976 low-budget horror movie Grizzly which remained unreleased until 2020. In 1984, he had a role in the Cold War teen drama Red Dawn with Patrick Swayze, C. Thomas Howell, Lee Thompson, and Jennifer Grey. Uh, Sheen and Grey reunited in a small scene in Ferris Gooders Day off in 86. Hmm. Uh, He had his first major role in this movie, Platoon, in 86. In 87, he starred with his father in Wall Street, also directed by Oliver Stone. In 1988, he asked Sheen to star in the film Born on the Fourth of July, but decided to cast Tom Cruise instead. Sheen was never notified by Stone. He only found out when he heard the news from his brother, Emilio. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But he also starred in 1988. He starred in the baseball film, Eight Men Out, as outfielder Happy Felsh. Also in 88, he appeared opposite his brother, Emilio Estevez, in Young Guns, and again in 1990, in Minute Work. Sheen's had a long career. I mean, I kind of hit some of the stuff in the 80s, but um he's been around well he was around for a long time he kind of hit his end of his career in the 2000s and when we're going you to that yeah pretty much yeah <laughs> tiger blood and winning uh, that's yeah. all you need to say but uh but yeah
2: you you, you skipped uh, Charlie Sheen and Tom Barranger coming back together in 1989 for a major league Before, oh yeah major league yeah,
0: yeah. exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think i mentioned yeah. it when i i think i mentioned it in tom Behringer stuff but yeah but yeah i, I wasn't going to forget okay. that Gotcha. yeah gotcha. yeah yeah all good uh yeah and it's funny because i just watched major league like last week so it's still fresh in my Mm -hmm. mind and then seeing in this movie was like yeah i could see them want to do a movie like major league after being in the jungle (laughs) (laughs) you know it's like yeah let's do this funny silly you know baseball movie where we get to you know cut loose and and be silly uh so that 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 was good and then, of course, because uh, uh, he was also in the Hot Shots movies, the parodies. Mm-hmm. And there was somebody there's somebody in this movie, I think, that was in that with him as well. I don't remember. Or maybe I'm thinking about something else. I don't know. But yeah, Stone verified an interview that Keanu Reeves actually turned down a role or turned down the role of Taylor because of the violence. And originally, when the movie was originally going to be happening in 84, Charlie Sheen was turned down for the main role because it was felt he was too young for the part. And actually, his older brother, Emilio Estevez, was offered the part, but the project fell apart due to financial problems. But two years later, the project was given the go-ahead, but Estevez had already committed to other projects, so Charlie was able to read for the part again and won it. So I thought that was uh, pretty interesting that both brothers were in contention for the same role. And then, of course, we have to bring up that their father had done Apocalypse Now, which was you know mm-hmm. a very big Vietnam War movie. And uh, I didn't put it in the notes, but watching the the documentary, I forget that Charlie Sheen was with his dad in the Philippines when he was feeling filming Apocalypse Now. He said he was there for about eight weeks. And when he left, he vowed he would never go back to the Philippines. And then he said then he got this movie and he had to go back. So um, so he talked a little bit about, you know, if you, you know, that's its own story, Apocalypse Now. But that was a pretty rough uh, movie to shoot as well. I want to say that um, Martin Sheen had a heart attack on the filming of Apocalypse Now, Now, so it was very stressful. Mm. Uh, Moving right along with Mr. Tom Berenger, as Staff Sergeant Barnes, which I know we'll kind of get to later, but I have to say, uh, I'll wait, I'll wait, I'll wait. All right, so Berenger starred in several significant films in the 80s, including The Big Chill in 83, Eddie and the Cruisers, also in 83, Rustler's Rhapsody in 85, Shoot to Kill in 88, which is one of my favorites. And of course, we mentioned Major League in 89. He did receive an Academy Award nomination, his first portrayal of Barnes in Platoon. Uh, It did win him a Golden Globe Award for Best Supporting Actor. So of course, he did other movies and other notable films, like Born on the Fourth of July in 89, Shattered in 91. He's been in a bunch of stuff. I think most recently, I mean, I think one of the most recent movies I don't know him from is Inception, because he he was great in that one. I think he's been in some other stuff since then, but... Uh, but Tom Berenger is great actor. He was great in this.
2: Yeah, he played somebody that you really, 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 really hated.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
2: And only yeah, good actors can do that.
0: Right. Him and John Voight, right? <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, talked about him in Runaway Train. But yeah, and it's, uh, it's yeah. interesting because he's kind of the one character that you don't see another side of. Like all the other characters mm-hmm. have their moments, you know, but he's like the one constant through the whole movie. Like Barnes is who Barnes is from the beginning of the movie to the end. There's no changing. There's no changing him, um, which is ne- which is needed for this type of you know, for that type of storytelling and that kind of, kind of type of movie. But I just I just thought that was interesting. To like yeah, everybody else is the the war affects them all differently in how they you know how they change over the course. Of the movie, but you know, Barnes is Barnes from the beginning stone confirmed in an interview with the entertainment weekly that Mickey Rourke and Kevin Costner were also considered for the part of Barnes. He believes Costner turned down the role because his brother had actually been in Vietnam, so he didn't want to be in that movie so so then we'll move on to uh Sergeant Elias played by Willem Dafoe. He made his film debut in Heaven's Gate in 1980 but was fired during production. And was uncredited despite one of his scenes making it into the final cut of the movie. Um, he was also in streets of fire in 84 to live and die in LA in 85 before his breakthrough roles in the last temptation of Christ in 88 and Mississippi burning. Also in 90, um, 88. Sorry. <laughs> um, he also received an Academy Award nomination for best supporting actor for platoon. Um, he's been nominated several times for other movies. Um, of course, he's known. Uh, more recently, as supervillain Norman Osborn and the Green Goblin in the Spider-Man movies, Willem Dafoe played a great role in this as well.
2: Probably my favorite character in the movie, honestly.
0: Yeah, yeah. Elias, um, what I thought was cool that according to Stone, he said he intentionally cast Behringer and Willem against type. Behringer was mostly famous for playing good guys, and Dafoe was primarily played had played villains up until that <laughs> point. Both men received Oscar nominations for their work because that's pretty smart. You put them against type. Yeah. I was going to kind of wait and talk about like favorite, favorite characters. I don't want to say Barnes is my favorite character because I don't like who he is, but Tom <laughs> Berenger is so good oh, in dude. that role. I mean, yeah. it's just the, you know, how he didn't win an Academy award for that. I do not know. I don't even know. I should have looked up at who, who beat him. I don't remember. And the antagonism is that the right word? Antagonist, yeah. How they're so antagonists against each other, like that whole not yin and yang, I guess, but the the their polar opposite personalities. Really, I mean that holds the 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 core of the movie up until that point. Where spoiler alert, you know, Barnes shoots Elias in the jungle and leaves him for dead, thinking he's dead. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but those yeah those were two great characters and two actors that definitely played the parts well.
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, the, like you said, the yin and the yang, and I was sitting mm-hmm. there trying to figure out who, who won the best <laughs> the best actor that year, mm-hmm. but no, yeah, they, they did play two polar opposites and Charlie Sheen it, at the end, he talks about how mm-hmm. in a, in a voiceover, how yep. both of them like kind of has some kind of influence over him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and made him kind of who he is as bad as, as uh, Barnes was. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're, you're still going to get something out of him just because he's such a hardcore. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's some things you could take from that, even if he is a bad dude. So,
0: right. Exactly. And that was one thing, one of the, they they were talking to different critics and people about the movie and one of the documentaries. And one guy said it really well, and I should have wrote it down, but he said the one thing that, that platoon, did in changing how these type of movies were made is that it showed it showed you that there's good and evil in all of us you know they can they can both uh reside uh i think he said they can all reside in the same breast i guess meaning like in your heart you know and that, that's the whole that whole line that uh charlie you know charlie sheen makes in his voice over at the end is like you know they they were both kind of fathers to me i i, I was like their son and they battled for my soul, um, mm-hmm. which is exactly, you know, that's a great ending monologue for the movie because that kind of wraps it up. But um, but he but he felt like he was fathered by both of them. He he could see himself in both of them. And because really you look at them, they were both uh they were both good at what they did. They were both strong leaders and they both were effective soldiers and you they just had different styles of training and different styles of you know, commanding great characters, man.
2: Okay, so I looked it up. Here's the reason why Tom Berenger oh, lost. Oh gosh, because both him and Willem Dafoe were both nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Yeah, they so probably
0: canceled each other they out. They
2: canceled each other out, man. And Michael Caine won for Hannah and her sisters. That does you know not know make Woody me Allen movie?
0: Yeah, that does not make me happy.
2: <laughs> yeah, because I'm not, I'm not a big Woody Allen fan, so I'm that, not either. That does not make me happy at all.
0: Yeah, but I will say, I think during that time, like Woody Allen was winning like every year. So that was no big surprise um, at that time. But the Oscars don't always get it right. It's it's still that way now. But anyway, moving on. All right. So uh, keep going. We'll go with Keith David as King. Uh, He's known for his signature deep voice and commanding screen presence and over 300 roles across film, stage, television. He's been in other films such as The Thing in 82, which we've covered already on the podcast They Live in 88, Dead Presidents in 95, Armageddon in 98, There's Something About Mary in 98, Pitch Black in 2000, Crash in 2004, The Nice Guys in 2016, Nope in 2022. I mean, he's one of those actors that he's instantly recognizable voice and just his persona, but fantastic actor. I always like him in most of the movies that he's in. And I was excited at the beginning of this when I saw him, I was like, oh man, I forgot that he would, a lot of these, like, I forgot this guy was in this movie. And so, uh, but I like, he had a great role as well as King, another kind of mentor for uh, Taylor, especially early on in the movie.
2: Yeah, he's, I think uh, Defoe was talking about that him and Behringer were like the only ones who've really done anything before. Like, (laughs) 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 have some seasoning under their belt. Right. Everybody else is just a bunch of rookies. Yep. 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 but yeah, he he's also does he's done some voiceover work, like you said, he's got mm-hmm. some, that, that voice acting. I, I've heard so, his voice in several uh, mm-hmm. movies and shows and stuff. Like, yeah, I think he did, I think he narrated the Bible uh, miniseries. Yeah, yeah,
0: he, yeah. I think yeah. he did. Yep. So he's done some video game voiceover stuff too. I didn't cover, mm-hmm. but yeah, yeah, he's done a bunch of stuff. Then you've got Forrest Whitaker as Big Harold, after making his film debut in Fast Times Ridgemont High in '82. He went on to earn a reputation for intensive character study work for films such as Platoon, Good Morning Vietnam, 87 Bird in 88, The Crying Game in 92, Phenomenon in 96, The Great Debaters in 2007, uh, Respect in 2021. You know, he's been in other blockbusters like Panic Room, Rogue One, A Star Wars Story, and of course, Black Panther. He did win his Best Actor award for The Last King of Scotland in 2006, which is a phenomenal movie if you haven't seen it. Another Oscar winning actor in it early in his career. Like it was funny because once again, I forget that he's in this movie because I think the first movie I saw him in was Good Morning Vietnam, which came out, you know, a year or two after that. So I'll, I always think of that as being like his first movie. Of course, you know, I didn't, I didn't see Fast Times or of High when I was that young. But, uh, but yeah, he was also in he also has a really small brief role in uh, Bloodsport 88 as well.
2: yeah the first movie i saw him in was bird actually oh yeah uh, i had to watch that in a college uh music class
0: gotcha yeah that was directed by clint eastwood Mm -hmm. then moving right along we got francesco quinn as Ra. i mentioned him because he is the son of legendary actor anthony quinn uh so that's uh that's not why he got the movie but that's kind of what he was known for as much of his massive success, *Platoon* was an incident while filming gave Francesco, Fra- Francesco, sorry, a lot of trouble later on. In the middle of filming in the Philippines, he got into a furious argument with Willem Dafoe, which led to Fist being thrown. No surprise there. Uh, it gave an un- undeserved reputation of being a troublemaker in Hollywood, something he had to live down for a while afterwards. He did do some work on the TV series *Miami Vice*, but that's about all that was notable in his filmography. But I wanted to mention him because of his association with Anthony Quinn, but he was good in that role. I think mean, uh, Rob was a good, good character.
2: I had no idea it was Anthony Quinn's son. I didn't, yeah. I didn't read up on it. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> and then someone else who's related to uh, a famous actor from the eighties, Kevin Dillon as Bunny, who of course is the mm-hmm. brother of Matt Dillon. Their own great uncle was the cartoonist Alex Raymond, who created Flash Gordon. Put that in your trivia bucket list. Oh, he did a few movies before this. This was his big, biggest role in '88. He portrayed Brian Flagg in a remake of the 1958 American science fiction film, The Blob. It received mixed reviews, but was praised for its special effects and has since gained a cult following. Um, he's probably best known for being a part of the TV show Ensemble on HBO, which was a entourage. Pretty- entourage. Yeah, Ensemble. Sorry. Yeah. I was looking at something else. Yeah, uh, Entourage yeah. on HBO. So that's kind of where I knew him from, uh, more so than uh, than this movie. But John Cryer, Sheen's co-star in Hot Shots and the TV show Two and a Half Men, auditioned for the role of Bunny, but lost out to Kevin Dillon, probably for good reason. <laughs> yeah,
2: <laughs> but John Cryer got together with Sheen later on, though. Yeah, exactly. You know, what, what was the movie that they were in together? Hot Shots. Hot shots, yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. That must have been the connection I was thinking about earlier. So yeah. Um and then uh another one of my like not not one of the main characters, but maybe my second favorite character, John C. McGinley as Sergeant O'Neill.
2: <laughs> he was so good, man, at playing yeah. this like complete yeah. kiss up. Like, yeah. <laughs> and and uh, Coward. Coward, yeah,
3: exactly. <laughs> yeah. i got a bad feeling
0: about this one, Bob. Uh, yeah, his his voice, his accent is so, it's, it's so noticeable. But anyway, he had been cast in his first film role in Alan Alda's Sweet Liberty earlier in 86. That was followed the next year with Wall Street 87, which was also with Oliver Stone. And again, the next with Talk Radio in 88. He worked continually throughout the 90s, appearing in films such as Point Break in 91, Highlander 2, The Quickening in 91, Article ninety nine and ninety two. He was in Seven from nineteen ninety five. The Rock in ninety six. Nothing to lose in ninety seven. And a, one of my favorites, Office Space from nineteen ninety nine. Uh, but of course, I know and love him from his work on Scrubs, the TV show, yes. Uh, yes. as Doctor Perry Cox. Doctor Cox. Uh, which I had to I had to use this because I was a big fan of Scrubs. Throughout the series, Doctor Cox acts as an unwilling mentor to the protagonist J.D. played by Zach Braff. If you don't know the show. McGinley has said there are three things over the course of series that he improvised his constant usage of girls' names for JDs. He, he ad-libbed all those (laughs) he said, which he does with all of his real friends, his whistle, which he describes as a bad habit and his habit of touching his nose, a tribute to Robert Redford's character in the sting, which he says means it's going to be okay. That, Makes me want to go back and watch all the episodes of Scrubs again, knowing those things are in that. But but yeah, but he was great and he talked a lot. He was in both documentaries and uh, he was originally cast when it was going to be made in 84 and then, you know, had to basically re-audition when it got greenlit again for 86. So I thought that was pretty, pretty wild.
2: Oh yeah, I, I loved Scrubs. I, I it does make me want to go back and watch it. Yeah. That, that is yeah.
0: hilarious
2: that he that he did the whole women's name thing because yeah. that was one of the best. And, and he would come up with some random names mm-hmm. like Gertrude and stuff. Yeah, like, come on, dude.
0: Yeah, and it's funny because like I remembered him being in when scrubs came out i remember i was like how is this guy going to be funny because i remember him from platoon i remembered him from wall street i you know he's been in several oliver stone's movies so he always played like a very serious character so to see him do comedy was such a hard thing for me to kind of get through the first couple episodes but then he became like my favorite character on the show more so than jd yeah. but okay. but great great actor Uh, Glad he was in this one. I want to mention Reggie Johnson as Junior only because he was such a pivotal part in the movie. But you cannot find any information about Reggie Johnson anywhere. There was nothing on Wikipedia. There was nothing in IMDb. He's briefly in one of the documentaries like introducing himself, but he's not interviewed at all. And so I don't really know what the deal is with him, but I just wanted to make I wanted to reference him because his character is so important in the movie, even though you really don't like him, but that's why he's so good at it. Uh, but I was really shocked that he didn't do really anything else after this movie. So, uh, but I wanted to mention him for sure.
2: Yeah. It looks like he had a couple of minor roles, mm-hmm. in a uh, Bo Bridges directed movie called right. seven hours to judgment and like movies. Under, and and Christopher Kane did one called uh, the The Principal, but I never right. heard of any, either one of these movies. Uh, and I didn't, yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. I've seen The Principal; it's with uh, Jim Belushi and Louis Gossett Jr. But it was more of like a direct straight to video kind of a B movie. Yeah. I remember watching on VHS as a kid. So, but yeah, but very my, but minor roles for sure. So yeah. um, even when he's on screen, it's like I know I've seen this guy before. Like, what has he been in? He he obviously has done something else. But he really Mm -hmm. hadn't, so it's kind of kind of disappointing. All right, we're gonna hit a few more. So we got Mark Moses as Lieutenant Wolf, best known for his role as Paul Young in ABC comedy drama Desperate Housewives from two thousand four to two thousand eleven, and as Herman Duck Phillips in the AMC Mm -hmm. period drama Mad Men from 2007 to twenty fourteen. Another person looked really familiar, um, and uh, once again, perfectly cast for the role as well. Then you've got Corey Glover as Francis. Um he was at the time he was the lead vocalist of the rock band Living Color. So hmm. he had to tell the band he was going to make a movie in the Philippines. <laughs> this is his only major acting credit. But uh and he wanted to make everybody oh. know that he is not Donald Glover's son. So <laughs> or not um uh, <laughs> Danny I, I, Glover. Danny Glover. Yeah, I got the my, yeah, he's not Danny yeah. Glover's son. That was that was a direct quote on his IMDB page. Uh so I'm sure That's he gets hilarious. asked that a lot. Uh and then of course Johnny Depp as learner. You know, this was, he had already done Nightmare on Elm Street in 84, but this was his next movie that really kind of put him on the map. Of course, he was in other movies like Crybaby in 90, What's Eating Gilbert Grape in 93, Benny and June in 93, uh, Donnie Brasco in 97. Of course, he was with Tim Burton for Edward Scissorhands in 1990, Edward in 94, and Sleepy Hollow in 99. Of course, everybody now knows him as Jap- Captain Jack Sparrow in the Pirates of the Caribbean series or franchise. So, but he was kind of a blink and you're missing kind of a part in the movie. But of course, after he was such a big, once he became like a household name with 21 Jump Street, the TV show, whenever it would come on TV, everyone was like, oh my gosh, forgot Johnny Depp was in this. Mm -hmm. Oliver Stone said he considered casting Depp for the lead role of Taylor, but Depp was too young for the part and unknown at the time. Stone said that Depp would someday become a huge star and is thus one of the first filmmakers to introduce Johnny Depp to Hollywood.
2: Yeah, I did not even realize. It. I, I see. I never watched Twenty One Jump Street though. I was <laughs> too young, a little young, a little right? bit too young to Yeah. So, but that's that's interesting.
0: <laughs> so, so that's it for like the main cast. There were a few other people in there that I recognize, but just for the sake of time, we won't hit them all, um, unless there's anybody that you wanted to mention.
2: No, I mean we got all the the main people that I can even. Yeah that went on to do really anything.
0: Right. Uh, So (laughs) many Vietnamese refugees living in the Philippines at the time were recruited to act in different Vietnamese roles in the film. Want to make make mention of that. Um, And of course, Oliver Stone does make a cameo appearance as the commander of the third battalion 22nd infantry and the final battle, which is based on the historic new year's day battle of 1968 in which he had taken part of while on duty in South Vietnam. Dale Dye, who played Captain Harris, the commander of the company B is a U.S. Marine Corps Vietnam veteran who also served as the film's technical advisor. And he, him and Stone are basically the ones that were over, oversaw the boot camp and, uh, put them through the hell that they went through in that.
2: Yeah, and Dale die. He's actually been technical yeah, he, advisor. And and he, he always acts in the movies that mm-hmm. he's an advisor on. Like he's yeah. been in Saved Private Ryan, you know, right. natural Film killers,
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, Born on Fourth of July, like all like, casualties of war. Uh, I don't know if you covered that yeah, one yet or not. I
0: haven't yet, but yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah, he um, said that but, after that like he was trying to get into Hollywood doing, you know, being an advisor for these movies. And he said after the movie came out and was such a huge success, his phone, you know, started ringing off the hook. And he's like, oh, now you all want me to come and be a part (laughs) of your movies. So, but yeah, but I recognized, I recognized his voice and I recognized him immediately when he was on screen. I was like, he has been in so many, like played a military officer in so many movies uh, before knowing that he was the advisor in this and knowing the backstory. Always does well in, in the roles that he's in.
2: I still need to watch Band of Brothers.
0: Yeah, I haven't watched it yet either. Maybe uh, this Memorial Day, we'll get, I'll get to it.
3: And now, these messages. What's up, dudes? I'm Jerry D. of Totally Rad Christmas, the podcast that talks all things Christmas in the 80s. Toys, movies, specials, music, books, fashion, and fads.
0: If it was gnarly during Christmas in the 80s, he's got it covered. Wait, is there a lot of things to talk about for the 80s and Christmas?
3: Well, you got the movie giants like Christmas Vacation, Scrooge, and A Christmas Story. There are TV specials like Muppet Family Christmas, Claymation Christmas Celebration, and a Garfield Christmas special.
0: Plus classics shown every year.
3: You also jam out to Last Christmas, Do They Know It's Christmas, and Christmas in Hollis. But most of all, it was a time for the most bodacious, best-selling Christmas toys ever. Like He-Man, G.I. Joe, Transformers...
0: And Cabbage Patch Kids.
3: Yes, them too. We cover them all, plus much more, including standard segments like Hap Hap Happiest Memory, Gagging with the Spoon, The Other Half of the Battle,
0: and Chant with the Littles.
3: So tune in to Totally Rad Christmas everywhere you get your podcasts. Turn the clock back and dive into those warm and fuzzy memories.
1: Later dudes! Hey everybody, do you ever just sit around with your friends and reminisce about the days and how things used to be when you were a kid or a teenager or maybe even a young adult? TV shows and the movies that you watched at the time, and how things just aren't quite the same today. Well, let me tell you, I've got the place for you. My name is Chris Adams, and I'm the host of the podcast Retro Life for You. And here at Retro Life for You, we talk about and discuss movies and TV that is retro. And we are going back from the 80s and the 90s and into the 2000s. Hey, sometimes we might even touch back to the 70s if we're feeling good. If this is for you, Make sure you look for us on everywhere that you can find your podcast at. Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, Google, Stitcher, or hosted on Anchor FM. And make sure you follow us on all the major networks and leave us a rating and a review. It really does help. Look forward to hearing from you. All
0: right, well, let's talk about, I mean, iconic scenes. There's a couple for sure and then favorite scenes, I guess I'll let you go first. What, what's the most iconic scene for you?
2: To me, it's got to be Elias running through the jungle, screaming, mm-hmm. getting shot over and over, and then mm-hmm. he finally falls to his knees, and he lifts his arms up as, as he takes several shots at the chest. Mm-hmm. You, you see that happening, man, and you're like, how many bullets did this dude take? <laughs> right, right. Like, and he's still reaching up. like. hmm that's a dude man yeah like, yeah um i just I, I i love i told you he's my favorite character mm-hmm. um but that scene is it's the one that made it on the cover of the movie right or like right. A, a lot of a lot of the different dvds or whatever that mm-hmm. has, has that yeah. on the cover um that's 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 it for me though that's i that's the most iconic one
0: yeah i would say that's that's probably the iconic scene of course like i said why it's on the cover it was It wasn't the original movie poster cover, but it became like the second version of the movie poster and was on the VHSs and the DVDs, like you said. What's interesting about, like you said, about getting hit over and over again. So Oliver Stone really wanted to hire a Native American for that role, Mm -hmm. but couldn't find one that, you know, kind of really fit the way he wanted to. So when he cast Willem Dafoe, he still told him, he's like, hey, I want you to have this kind of Native American spiritual essence to you and William Nefoe was saying that he really you know he th- that brought a lot of him that helped him with a lot of those scenes and I, and I i think about that scene specifically specifically like he's already been shot by barnes in the middle of the jungle then he's running out of the jungle he's being shot from behind and he just keeps going but that lifting his hands to the heavens kind of gives you that thing of like is he lift you know he and he said even in that scene he was like am i throwing my hands up because i'm being shot am i throwing my hands up because I'm still trying to reach the helicopter or am I just lifting my hands to the heaven saying, okay, this is it. I know this is the end. Take me, you mm-hmm. know, per- take me home kind of a thing. So which puts that into a lot of you know, new context as well. Mm-hmm.
4: Um,
0: I'm not going to say there's really favorite scenes, like somebody <laughs> said, favorites of things. These are not scenes that make me happy, but uh I don't really think they're, they're not as like, going to be as iconic as that, but scenes that made an impact. Um, I think the village scene definitely stands out. That's one that that completely arrests you while it's happening. For sure did something that other movies had not done at that time. Like that was pretty groundbreaking at the time to show that level of intensity and, oh my gosh, he's not really going to do this. And he did it anyway. It showed the brutality of Barnes for sure.
2: Yeah. That, yeah, that, that is a, that was a heavy scene, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of heavy scenes. In this there's movie. a lot, yeah. Um, but, but I, I, I actually do have a favorite scene. Okay, go for, <laughs> for it. <laughs> One that's kind of uplifting. Lighten it up for me, please. <laughs> uh, I'll light it up. Um, my, it's it's the party scene, man.
4: Oh um, yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: Everyone, they're all in this jungle, right? They're being mm-hmm. eaten by all kinds of bugs. Eating a lot, like they, they can't even sleep. They're having to like wrap up in a blanket it's mm-hmm. horrible conditions and but they all got together and they were they were drinking they were you know doing some other stuff
4: mm-hmm.
2: um but they were all like enjoying each other's company having having a good time and then smoky robinson comes on
4: <laughs> and right
2: just for a moment they're all hugged up together mm-hmm. and they're singing at the top of their lungs. A bunch right. of grown men, a bunch of grown military men are all right. singing right. at the top of their lungs and all hugged up together with all the joy that they have in them mm-hmm. in freaking Vietnam jungle. Like, <laughs> right. That's such a cool scene to me, yeah. man. Like yeah. even, even in the worst conditions, you can find mm-hmm. some kind of joy with your brothers, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's my manly moment, okay?
0: <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I was I was gonna get there. I was gonna get there. No, uh, no, no. But yeah, but yeah, I agree. It's like that, that, and it's where, you know, it's a turning point in the story too. Cause it's where Taylor begins to feel a part of the platoon, a part of the team where before, you know, he's definitely the outsider. Like he makes the comment, you know, he volunteered. Most of the guys didn't volunteer. They were drafted. So they didn't really want to be there. Like, why did you want to be here? And so he's kind of seen as the rich kid, the spoiled kid, like, you know, those kind of things. So to kind of be accepted was a big thing for him. But you also say that's another pivotal scene because you see how the plume is still divided because you have Elias's guys and you have Barnes's guys. So those that are with Elias, those are with Barnes. And so, you know, Barnes and, and the barracks, you know, they're playing cards and, you know, they're relaxing at their own, their own way as well. But, uh but yeah, definitely, definitely a good scene there. One of my other favorite quote unquote favorite scenes or like impactful scenes is after you know, of course, Taylor sees Elias get killed. And of course, I love the scene where he looks at Barnes in the helicopter, and Barnes—you can see it, like even with the prosthetics, you know, they, they make his face all scarred up, which is fantastic um, mm-hmm. for the character. You can see in his eyes, it's like, oh, I've been—I've been had, I've been caught. They know, you know, I've been caught in a lie. And so yep. then, you know, then it goes to the scene where they're in the barracks, and you know, Taylor's like, we gotta kill him. You know, he killed Elias, saw it in his eyes, da da da. And all of a sudden there's Barnes in, in the, you know, in the barracks kind of high in the back. And he has his whole speech about, you think, you know, I, I can't, I, I just watched it and I can't think of the words, but that, that whole scene of him confronting them is just so well done. And once again, pr- shows how great of an actor Tom Beringer was in that role. Yeah. yeah. That
2: was Baron Beringer said that was him trying to go and apologize, but you know, the, those words are never going to come out of his mouth. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So he he ends up with Taylor on the ground with a knife to his throat. (laughs) (laughs) It's
0: wild. And there's another scene with Barnes that I like too, where after it was after the explosion, after the guys got blew up, they thought they had found like some VC stuff and they were about to pick up the, uh, the little metal case it was in. And of course the whole thing blew up and Taylor kind of walks up on Barnes, just sitting next to it. And, Smoking, and you can tell he's trying to process what's just happened and it's like taylor sees him in this kind of this kind of vulnerable moment and then mm-hmm. when Barnes sees him looking at it, he kind of you know backs up but just another great just little nuances of the story that you know shows that barnes is human that yeah he's yeah he's evil <laughs> you know he's doing some bad things he you know he's looking out for number one because you know he shot Elias basically to keep from getting in trouble uh for what they did at the at the village. But in this scene, you kind of see like he 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 still has to deal with the death that he sees. He still deals with the loss of his soldiers, men that he fought next to. So there they're still there's still emotion in him. There's still care in him, even though he's not going to let them see that, you know, um, in public. He was trying to have a private moment. So that was a scene that really I, I kind of paid more attention to this time
2: oh for sure for sure what about when he uh after he had the falling out with with chris and mm-hmm. like he knew and and the whole when when he goes down from and like he was about to like oh stab yeah stab him right yeah, yeah. And, and then and then this uh bomb comes down and he goes flying and he's like Dragon, like and, and then he and then he still tells chris he says go get me a medic boy and it's like yeah. dude you were about to kill me <laughs> right right <laughs> are, you, are yeah. you kidding me right now mm-hmm. like, <laughs> like, still he, trying he, to be in control he's still, he's still trying to be the man i'm like yeah. dude come on now
0: yeah. <laughs> oh gosh yeah that's another intense scene Lord. like that that whole confrontation at the end and then oh i wanted to mention this i don't know if this was in your documentary that you sent or the other one but Charlie Sheen was talking about that the following scene where he's sitting there and the other the other platoon kind of walks up on him. And I didn't notice it until he talked about it, but he was actually holding a grenade. And he oh, said yeah, that he went to. Right, yeah. yeah, he went to Oliver and he was like, you know, I think after this, I think I think Taylor's wants to end it. I think I think he's holding that grenade, thinking about just dropping it and ending it all. And said so when those guys come in, he drops it with a pen still in it because he felt he's like he was about to do it and then he got caught and then he decided not to, which I thought Mm -hmm. was just a, you know, and he said, Oliver Stone's like, do it. You know? And, and that just brings them living those characters, like that kind of a, of a thought coming out. So I was like, that's, that's pretty heavy. I mean, yeah, but you got to think all that he had been through that night with that battle, you know, half his, half of the guys, you know, dying, the napalm being dropped um, Mm -hmm. and him, you know, finally, you know, shooting Barnes and, you know, it's, it's not really said, but it's kind of understood that. Yeah. He in his mind is like, yeah, I'm going to kill Barnes. For what he did to Elias, but you could tell like after he shot him, there was that conflict on the inside of like, am I any better than the man I just killed now? Because I, you know, I Eli- Elias. Uh, I'm sorry. Barnes shot Elias in cold blood and I did the same thing. So what's the difference between me and him in this moment? Um, kind of a thing, which. May have led him to thinking about about the the grenade, but anyway, this is a lot. I and mean, this is a multi layered movie, like we said. You know, every time I watch it, I see something different, or I re- there's there's other things that come up in it, and it's just that type of movie where you need multiple viewings to kind of catch some of those nuances and see different parts of the story that's being told. Uh, that's how great movies are made, for sure.
2: For sure, man. And this is one of those that we could go on and on and on about. <laughs> yeah. It. <It's- laughs> Uh, yeah. we, we might end up being really depressed if we, if we talk too much <laughs> <Right>. about it. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like, we're, we're,
0: we're about to wrap, start wrapping this thing up. Uh, so any other <laughs> scenes you want to talk about before we, we talk a little bit about trivia?
2: Oh man, I think we covered it. Um, like I said, there's so many heavy scenes in this film. It's mm-hmm. just, it's hard to, it's hard to nail them all.
0: Yeah. All right. We'll hit some trivia. And if we think of something else, we'll, we'll add it in. So the U.S. Department of Defense declined to cooperate in the making of the film. Military equipment was loaned from the armed forces of the Philippines. So yeah, the 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 US Department of Defense didn't like the way the war was portrayed in the movies. So they didn't want to have anything any involvement with it. Yeah, one scene we didn't, another heart heavy scene we didn't talk about was the scene. Who a Kevin Dillon uh Bunny and Taylor and the the boy with one leg and the cataract um and tormenting him and the in the the village, uh, one of the other villages. But uh, Kevin Dillon said he flipped out when they filmed the scene where his character beats the villager boy to death because the guy he was doing it to was a Filipino. The filmmakers had picked up somewhere. He was actually deaf and blind in one eye and missing a leg. Dillon felt bad for the guy because he was a nervous wreck the whole time, and Dillon wasn't sure if he knew they were just filming a movie. The scene was so intense that even his mom couldn't bear to watch it. The young man had cataracts, but his family was too poor to pay for treatment. Here's your bright side. Reportedly, Dylan and Sheen felt so bad about this, they pulled money together so the boy could get the surgery to to, uh, fix his cataracts. So, wow. Little feel-good story there for you. There you go. I saw this and I put this in because I remember this scene where just before the initial of the end battle, an NVA soldier is seen planting a yellow axe made of bamboo. And I was like, I wondered why that was like, it was such a weird kind of shot. Like they, they zoomed, you know, it was like a slow zoom in on it. And so it says the ax was a pointer to guide the NVA soldiers to the American base. So that was kind of, I guess, kind of an inside thing that Stone knew about that. That's what they used to kind of tell the the other NVA where to go. Yeah, I think that's all I'm going to cover for trivia. There'll be other stuff that I'll put in the uh, the show notes, but there's a lot of stuff. I and mean, we, like I said, we, we can talk you know the good thing about doing so much research you have so much stuff you could pull from, you could pull from and just keep talking about different stories or whatever so one thing that
2: i um just thought about was that one scene and you know oliver wrote this so it it, 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 it probably happened this way
4: mm-hmm.
2: um when he was when elias was talking to chris and elias just comes right out and says man we're going to lose this war
0: oh yeah yeah.
2: And and Chris is like, oh, come on. Are you serious? Like Nobody thought America could lose anything. Right. Right. Like, right. Nobody thought. Right. Uh, and, and so but here's this soldier who's there and he's coming to. to uh,
0: Coming to, to terms,
2: coming yeah. to terms with the fact that this ain't happening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like We're, we're, we're going to lose this war. And he says mm-hmm. we've been kicking other people's you know what, for mm-hmm. so long. It's time that we got ours kicked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that
0: line stood out to me for sure. Oh um, man. And they talked I think Dale Dye talked about he said he they didn't think the movie was gonna was gonna do the very well because it was so different than what American audiences had seen in other war movies. And so first of all, they were surprised that it became such a box office success and the critics loved it or whatever. But Dale Dye said he would take cuts of the movie to other veterans for them to see to find out what they thought. And, you know, for them to say that they felt like someone finally got it right. And then the the good and the bad of that is like you had a lot of veterans that came out of the woodwork and said, you know, thank you for telling our story. I haven't been able to talk to my family about the things that I've seen. So I'm taking them to the movie so they can at least have some kind of context of what we what we endured and what we went through there. But then you had the other side of the people that came out of the woodwork that were then didn't like the movie because they were like, they didn't like the way the military was portrayed. They didn't like that, you know, seeing the soldiers doing the things they did. And he said, but you know, that was, that was the dichotomy of the nation at that time. It was like those that were anti-war saw the things in the movie that said it was anti-war, but then other people that saw it with pro-war went in and saw the things that, that he's like, I don't think Oliver made a movie that was anti-war. I think he just tried to show them a very, they, he wanted to show them what he experienced. He said every. He said, and there's thousands of soldiers that fought in the in the uh, in the conflict in the war, and they all had different experiences. So we weren't saying this is the only experience. We were just giving them what our experience that we had. So everybody didn't have the same experience, but we wanted to show a different side of what we experienced. So I just thought that was important to say um, on the podcast and about the movie because um, I my plan is to release this on Memorial Day Memorial Day weekend. Um, And I do like how the movie ends with a dedication to all those, all those who fought and died in the Vietnam War, because, you know, that's what Memorial Day is about. It's about remembering our veterans and the price they paid. You know, yeah, the Vietnam War is not uh, a war that America is really proud about. And for a lot of reasons, uh, it shouldn't be. But we still had brave men men that uh, went and fought for their country and laid down their life for a cause, even if they didn't understand why they were there or agree with why they were there, but they, they were doing it for their country. And so I just, you know, want to commend uh, any veterans that may be listening uh, to the episode. Uh, thank you for your service. Thank you for what you do. And uh, I, I hope, and I pray that we never put ourselves in another conflict like that again. I hope we learn from our, our history and don't make the same mistakes we've made in the past. I'll just leave it at that
2: yeah they um has the interviewed some vietnam vets yeah, uh, for yeah. for one, for the docu- one of the documentaries the one that mm-hmm. i watched and a lot of them were saying you know how the movie you know they used to be ashamed to be a vietnam yeah, vet because yeah, they yeah. were so talked down everybody mm-hmm. thought that, thought bad of them and even they you know, we're so ashamed. But after watching that movie and seeing it on screen like that, it made them it made them proud to be Vietnam mm-hmm. vet. And so, yeah. like that, that's just cool that 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 Stone can do something like that. And and like you said, it's just it's him paying tribute to everyone who mm-hmm. fought, gave their lives, and and lived through it. And it's yeah, just, yeah, so
0: yeah, and I think even looking at it, even now looking at it, like I don't think that he, the intent of the movie was not to glorify what they did like I didn't see it it isn't it isn't made that way I think it's just trying to be he's trying to be authentic how he put the the actors through the boot camp and how he filmed the things that he the way he did and and showed things that he experienced and he even (laughs) said he was like you know he said I hate he said he said one of his one of the things he hated doing was those village going to those villages and he said because you know you never knew who was VC and who wasn't, he, he said, you know, and some were, and some weren't, he said, but we didn't know, we didn't have any good intelligence. We didn't, we really didn't, we were going on instinct. He said, that's not always the best thing to do. Um, he said, so it's a shame that I only showed one instance of that, but that was a part of the movie that we did, we needed to see. He said, but you know, every village wasn't that way. He said, that just, that's just one that was in that story. Um, so take it all in context. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's talk about box office and wrap this thing up. So it was released in the United States on December 19th, 1986. What a great movie for Christmas. Um, (laughs) And in the Philippines, United Kingdom on March of 87. In its seventh weekend of release, the film expanded from 214 theaters to 590 and became number one at the U.S. box office. It remained number one for four weeks and its ninth weekend, it grossed $12.9 million from, hun- from 1,194 theaters over the four-day President's Day weekend, being the first film to gross more than $10 million in a weekend in February and setting a weekend record for Orion Pictures. But that's wild. It was it was limited release for six weeks before it went wide, but was in number one when it went wide. So it's pretty, pretty good. Great word of mouth, I'm sure for that so
4: mm-hmm.
0: critical reception no surprise here 89 percent on tomato meter with a 93 percent audience score and then which is interesting because it's almost flipped on imdb it's got an 8.1 out of 10 with viewers and a 92 on metacritic hmm. the critics gave it was you know high 80s audience in the 90s and then on imdb the viewers have it at 8 and metacritic in the 90s so uh what about you where does it fall for you is it a top tier
2: uh- yeah, for sure. I mean, it's I have it a, at a four point five kind of teeter. I, mm-hmm. I I I could almost say it's a five a five star movie, mm-hmm. um, but man, it's it's Vietnam. It's hard for me to say anything's like. I, for me, I, I got to be able to rewatch it, and I can't rewatch this <laughs> yeah. that often. Yeah, yeah. This but one, this one doesn't have
0: ask, the yeah rewatchability. Yeah,
2: but I, I did say in my review that um if you asked me what my favorite vietnam movie was i would either say it would be the last movie that i watched between platoon full metal jacket or um apocalypse now but mm-hmm. if you really put a gun to my head and ask me <laughs> okay for real tell me what's your favorite it's going to mm-hmm. be platoon all yeah. day every day yeah so so visceral man like yeah. it's just uh, but it's hard man it's hard to watch but it's yeah it's it's the best in my opinion though as yeah. far as vietnam goes
0: yeah I watched apocalypse now for the first time last Memorial Day, so I've seen that a year ago, and I appreciate that film for what it is like knowing you know kind of knowing some of the backstory before watching it, but kind of just watching it you kind of understand the 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 heaviness of it um this one's a little more palpable in the sense of being able to kind- of, it's still heavy and rough, but I think it 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 delivers a little bit better than I think apocalypse now does. Um, I've only seen full metal jacket maybe once or twice, and I have not watched it recently. So I can't really rank that one because I didn't, I didn't like it when I was younger, but I know now it's probably cause I didn't understand it. Like I would understand watching it now. So that's, that's like, all, that's, you know, I want to record first and then watch it. Cause I know it's also on, uh, well, it's not HBO max anymore. Now it's just max, but I watched platoon on max and now, I know Full Metal Jacket is on there as well. So I was like, after I record, get all this out of my system, then I'm going to go back and rewatch Full Metal Jacket. And uh, so I can, like, like you have that, a lot of people, there's that that divide of, there's those that, you know, prefer Full Metal Jacket, those that prefer Platoon. So I wanted to kind of watch them close together and say which one would I put above the other. But I think Platoon may win out just because I have more memory. I have more nostalgia with Platoon than I do with, uh, Full metal jacket but we'll see it might surprise me stay tuned <laughs> we it's, might cover that I one mean, next year
2: yeah it's a it's a great movie man yeah I, and oh, i yeah, covered yeah. it with, I covered it with an episode of manly movies so mm-hmm. i mean it's 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 a good one to watch it's a good one to talk about man so I look forward to the future episode that you do <laughs> maybe next <year. laughs>
0: cool cool well thanks man so much for being a part of this episode always a pleasure to have you so uh what's going on with manly movies for the month of june what you got coming up
2: start with uh, memorial day actually yeah. i'm going to be dropping uh saving private ryan which uh-huh. features so yours truly here yes. mr tim williams yes um which is a great episode and a great 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 movie mm-hmm. um, and then i'm gonna do a a special and me and a guest host uh, byron lafayette are going to discuss our favorite movie dads and tv dads
0: Oh, okay cool
2: yeah so it's just something different that i'm doing um then I, i'm not sure what father's day movie i'm going to drop um it might be <laughs> teenage Mutant ninja turtles i'm just going to say that <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, maybe S- splinter was kind of a father figure so i guess that works
2: i've got i've got a couple uh, of father movies in in the in the bank. I'm not sure which one it's gonna be at. So that. So gotcha. That gotcha. might be that might be the one though. We'll see. <laughs>
0: <laughs> cool deal. Well definitely check out Manly Movies, uh the podcast that JB uh, hosts. It's a great one. I've been on there a couple of times. He always has good, insightful guests and talks about great movies to learn learn about being a man, a husband, a father. I'm trying to I'm trying to do your 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 whole shtick, but I can't get it I can't get it all down. <laughs>
2: Uh a husband, a father, a son, and a brother. There it is. I'm not a, I'm not an expert on any of those things, but I mm. do the best I can. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah.
0: All right, so be sure to follow, subscribe, rate, and review both of our podcasts. Uh support the show through buymeacoffee.com. You can also buy a t-shirt. Hey, it's summertime. Get those uh t-shirts for the, your trips to the beach or going on vacation. You can get those at our website. 80sflickflashback.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with someone who loves 80s flicks. And you can also follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. All right, JB, thanks so much again for being a part. And thanks everybody for listening. I'm Tim Williams for the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. Good night, good people.